on the confines of eternity. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday sermon of November 8, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. The eternal perspective is an anchor of the Christian worldview, says Canon Daryl Fenton. A disciple of Jesus lives in that eternal perspective, knowing that there will be an end to mortal time. For those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, our mortal journey is about learning to be like Him and accomplishing His purposes on earth. We are to be His hands and feet, bringing justice and healing and witnessing His love to the hurting world around us ever ready for the day Jesus returns. Are you blessed by our teaching audio? Are you joining us virtually on YouTube? We're so glad to have you with us in these difficult days. Let us know you are watching or listening by sending us a message on Facebook or by making a donation to the church, the Mercy Fund, or other projects listed on our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Todah Rabbah! To prepare our thoughts and our minds and our hearts uh, to the passages of Scripture, there's a prayer called the Collect. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Our first text uh, for today is from the prophet Amos, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you, as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, And I shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It'll be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies, though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a living stream. 
Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You carried Sikuth, your king, and Shion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you had made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no, no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. From the Gospel, is taken from Matthew chapter 25. Please stand with me as we turn to the words of Jesus himself. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to meet with you, yes, to praise you, to sit at your table, but to hear from you. Not from a preacher, but from your word. That our hearts might be full of your instruction, that our lives may be rescued from the troubles around us, 
but most of all, that our love for you may grow and our relation deep, relationship with you deepen day by day to that time when we see you face to face. Be with us tonight, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In the name of the one who redeemed us, amen. Please be seated. The uh, ground on which we, we stand tonight, or sit, uh, was, was purchased and arranged for by a man named John Nicolaisen. He did this work in the late 1820s, but there's actually quite a backstory that goes with it. John Nicolaisen came here in January of 1826 via Beirut. He was one of parade, a small parade of workers coming out from England, from America, and in his case, from Denmark. Of those who had come out before him, four had already died. But he was going to join Dr. George Dalton, who was a, a medical missionary sent here to look after those in Jerusalem and Israel who were suffering, particularly here in Jerusalem, which was ridden by plagues of typhus and cholera, and who needed medical attention. Within the month, George Dalton died too. Some months later, um, Nicolaisen returned to Beirut and attended the funeral of Dalton's daughter ultimately marrying his wife and bringing her with him here, where he ministered and labored for many years. But he says in his journals several times, this was a sickly season. A sickly season. A season of sickness. And from his journal we find this record of one of those times when he himself fell ill. He says on September 1st, since the above date, that is August 13th, I've not been able to use a pen, but now, through the rich goodness and wise providence of my God, I am recovering fast. I have been on the confines of eternity, the borders of eternity, and what a privilege. I desire to record my most unfeigned gratitude to the Father of mercies, not only for my recovery, but rather for the invaluable experience made in the sickness. Oh, how very precious has the Redeemer appeared to my soul <clears throat> as my only and all-sufficient hope in view of eternity, but brought so near. May I live the rest of my days entirely to Him and in Him. I read you these words from, uh, from, Nic from John Nicolaisen because they come to bear on the three texts that we heard today. Uh, first, we'll take a look at the one from Thessalonians, and then the one from our Gospel, and finally, the one from Amos. But I want us to, uh, to gather that at least two of these, and even three, depending how one looks at them, point to a beginning and an end for history, that human history in this mortal life as a beginning and end, not just for individuals, but for the planet and for all eternity. 
Those who put their trust in Jesus see their mortal life end and eternity begin. It is a mystical and quite outrageous doctrine that Jesus will return, gather up those he's called to himself, be with them forever in a new heaven and a new earth as an absolute and absolutely righteous sovereign. Now, for those of you who are with us tonight from somewhere else in the world, or maybe even here, who find that a tall order, I think all of us here can understand how strange it sounds in a world as secular as our own. Nevertheless, it is the foundation and the rock of what disciples of Jesus have believed down through the ages. It is both our challenge and our hope. And so we're delighted to have you with us as you listen along. But most of what I say tonight will be a reminder for those of us who've chosen to follow him. We'll begin this journey through three texts that's about our journey through life to the Lord. With 1 Thessalonians 4. It was written to the church at Thessaloniki, we would say Salonica today, a poor church by Paul's account, often struggling but very generous. There were troubles all around, and of course it helps to remember that in the first century when Paul was writing, the average age of death in the Roman Empire was 45, often by one kind of plague or another. And so it was present, ever present in the minds of his disciples. So this little bit of text that we read concludes with verse 18 giving us Paul's purpose, which was comfort one another with these words you have read. Some might think this a text that's escapist, but really Paul's purpose is perseverance, to give hope, to face trouble, and to live through it responsibly. In that same letter, he describes those who are not disciples of Jesus and what will await them, because they will say for all sorts of temporal reasons, peace and safety are ours. But they'll reject Jesus and find that in the end, they will not be able to withstand the death and destruction that will come upon them. But really, the piece of this text that all Christians rejoice in is this, this small paragraph. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And indeed, down through the centuries since these words were written, believers in all sorts of trouble, be they John Nicolaisen or others throughout history in war or death or sickness or trouble, have looked at this great promise of the shout and the trumpet and the day we rise to meet the Lord. Now I must say, as a, as a sidelight, we often understand this text to mean we rise to meet the Lord and we go away. Perhaps some more reliable scriptural versions based on 2 Peter chapter 3, which says we'll return with him to a new heaven and a new earth. So we go out to meet him, just as those, those bridesmaids went out to meet the bridegroom to come back with him to the feast. And so it may be with us as well. But whatever way one wants to look at it, it is the ultimate rescue from a fallen and mortal world. But 
but there's one piece of that, the last half of verse 17, to which I think we should pay very careful attention. It says this, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now when you think, if you do, about what it will be like to be with the Lord, say if he came tonight, tomorrow, and a month from now, and six months from now, and a year from now, and 50 years from now. And my wife Sandy and I have been married 50 years. 50 years seems like an awfully long time, even to an old man like me. But what if those 50 years were multiplied by 50 times? What will it be like? What will be required to live with the Lord again, day after day after day? Paul gives us some summary hints earlier in the text in chapter 4. He says, sanctification, holiness is required. And certainly here at Christ Church, we hear often about how the presence of the Lord lives among his people when they seek to please him by holiness. He says what is always said in these texts, no sexual immorality. He quotes in one way or another, paraphrases the royal law, to love your brothers and your sister as you love yourself. And he says at the end of chapter 5, persevere, don't give up, continue in your trust in the Lord. It's all quite hopeful, if a little bit challenging, but that text we heard from the gospel that I just read has a darker tone and one perhaps to which we can turn with some benefit. Um, to remind you Jesus' purpose. He's talking, as he often does, about the kingdom of heaven. And that should tell us something about how important he is. it is. He talks about ten bridegrooms, ten virgins, who, who will stand at the side of the bride at the wedding and the wedding feast of the bridegroom who's coming. Now, those of you who know Scripture know that throughout the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, God the Father and Israel are likened to a married couple, he the husband and Israel his bride. And he often describes in terms of that metaphor the depth of feeling he has for Israel. Jesus takes that same metaphor and, and changes it into himself as the bridegroom yet to come, and his church as his bride. It's a stretch for guys sometimes to think of themselves as a bride. As a bride. Nevertheless, that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. And so while we're waiting for this wedding to begin, Jesus says these, these bridesmaids, there were five of them that were quite foolish because they brought lamps. It was a late night wedding. Sounds like round to midnight. Five of them only brought a lamp full of oil. And the other five brought extra oil. And Jesus describes the first five as foolish. Now, we tend to translate that into silly. But in biblical terms, it's a great warning about living the wrong kind of life. But he commands the other five and says, they were ready. They were foresighted. They were, they were really ready. But they all fall asleep waiting for the bridegroom, who appears to be a bit tardy, not coming exactly when they thought he ought to come. And suddenly, 
there's a shout. The bridegroom's coming. And of course, you go out to meet the bridegroom and welcome him to the wedding in the wedding hall. And then in verse 8, those who were foolish said, give us some of your oil. I think we may miss the fact that, that the other, bride, uh, the other uh, bridesmaids say, no, go out and get your own. It seems as though the Beatitudes have run out because there's no condemnation of the, of the five bridesmaids who were ready. In fact, that seems to be Jesus' point, that in the kingdom of heaven, we must be ready because we don't know the hour when the wedding will begin because the bridegroom has arrived. And probably the last thing in the parable that we should note that gives it its real tone of warning is that everybody in this story that Jesus tells thinks they're part of the wedding. All of the bridesmaids think they should be inside. All of the bridesmaids feel like they belong to the wedding party. But five were foolish, and whatever they thought, they weren't prepared. And five prepared and were perseverant and ready, and so they were let in. And those harsh words at the end, I never knew you, seem a great on modern ears for being foolish. But in fact, being foolish and not being ready is the whole point of what Jesus was saying. And so we'd have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be ready? And although it's many hundreds of years before, the words of Amos, I think, um, while very humorless and very difficult to hear, are in fact a word for our times and for this situation. So if you want to turn, if you have a Bible, to Amos chapter 5, that's where we're headed. Now I want to make a clear distinction here. Uh, we're, we're talking about a judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom, by Amos, a sheep herder who only has one short, brief career as a prophet, relatively unknown, in the, in the reign of Jeroboam, the last evil king, before Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom. What the text doesn't tell us is that this had been a, a century of relative prosperity for the people of Israel. They lived well. There was money. The economy was good. Uh, the, uh, the GDP was high. The crops had been fine. And Assyria, by God's hand, had been kept at bay for a century. And so they'd gotten just a bit more than just a bit. Uh, self-centered, self-satisfied, and self-righteous. And so one can imagine them listening to, to uh, Amos as he begins in chapters 1 and 2, decrying the sins of all the nations around them who they consider their enemies, Edom and Bashan and Syria and Tyre and Gaza. You can hear them almost pumping their fists and saying, yes, 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 our God is going to save us because we're not like them. And then suddenly... He turns his attention to Israel and describes that they will, be, um, they will be condemned. And he gives a list of reasons which is, um, is chilling. I just have to find it in my notes. He says, chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, 
You've rejected the Lord's statutes. That is, you no longer want to live as he recommended in the Torah. You're engaging in slavery, selling people for silver. And my goodness, even worse, even worse, you're taking a, man's, a poor man's pledge for his sandals, and when he can't pay for just those sandals, you're selling a poor man into slavery. You're perverting the humble. You don't honor them. In fact, you honor those who are boastful and proud. You take advantage of the poor and exploit them. You have a legal system that's rigged in favor of the wealthy and the powerful. You turn aside from those who are sick. You're guilty of gross sexual immorality, which he enumerates. Um, I don't know if we can grasp the power of that condemnation. But clearly, Amos did. He understood that God was angry because he had been betrayed. If you need a picture of what God was saying, it was that same marital picture. He says to Israel, I've looked after you. I brought you out of Egypt. I have cared for you. I have protected you. And you have betrayed me, and this is the last of its great sins, by lying by idols, by worshiping idols, by betraying me, as it were, by committing spiritual adultery. You have betrayed all the good things I have given to you in seeking your own self-satisfaction. And then he goes on to that, that phrase uh, in, 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 chapter, in verse 16, if you want to take a look there. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, in Israelite thinking, as I alluded to earlier, all the people around them were the enemies and the evil ones, but they were the good guys. And so when God came to judge, he would uphold them. He would make the world right and vanquish their enemies. And Amos says, you have it wrong. Because of all these things I've mentioned, the day of the Lord will be woe to you. What will it be like? It will be darkness and not light. And here, here is something we can't miss in the text, these next two phrases. Because the people of Israel, thanks to a, a century of well-being, at least those who were in leadership, had become complacent, had become self-righteous. They looked to judge those around them, but not to themselves. They felt safe and comfortable. He says, here's how it's going to be for you. He said, it will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and was suddenly confronted with a bear. You can imagine both the terror and the surprise. Or he said, It'll be like you go into your own house, and all of us go into our own houses, and we feel comfortable, and we relax. And he said, you'll put your hand up on the stone wall of that house, and out of the mortar will come a snake that will bite you. You felt safe, but you were actually in danger. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark? with no brightness at all. Okay, now, the next piece of the lesson we have to be sure we're paying attention to. Because the people of Israel were what the theologians call syncretistic. 
They may have worshipped idols, but they continued to do the worship of the Lord. And he says of their sacrifices, I despise your feasts. I don't savor your sacred assemblies. Okay, so all the things that are in your calendar of worship, I despise. Uh, your sacred assemblies? Though you offer me burnt offerings, they smell bad to me. Nor I, will I regard your fatted peace offerings. They're nothing to me. Take them away. And also, the noise of your songs of praise. I don't want to hear it. Because given how you live, they're obviously hypocritical. And then in that phrase that was made famous in my childhood by Martin Luther King Jr., he cries out, No, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, in our times, we may not quite grasp this quite rightly. This verse has been quoted often in the cause of those who are oppressed, especially African Americans, and rightly so. But along with the justice that's required is the righteousness that, that must come into the heart of every person. Because it's ever so easy to point out at injustice, to point out at those who are wrong, to point out that those, at those who sin, while at the same time being blind to our own unrighteousness and our own lack of justice. So I, I found myself this week, and the last, going over these texts, and I know this has not been one of those, those light-hearted sermons. The text didn't allow it. You know, when you preach from a lectionary, one of the things you're spared is the preacher getting to re-preach his favorite, his favorite sermon five or six different ways. But, of course, sometimes the quality is a little uneven because he's always looking at a new text, and sometimes those texts will speak to the heart of the preacher first. And as I read through all these things that were wrong with Israel and how outraged God was, I couldn't help but think, Daryl, living in the secular age you live, which is so full of permissiveness, are you able to hear God's convicting voice because you're so accustomed to the prosperity and the shouting against those with whom we disagree and the judgment in your own heart of those who look unrighteous, can you still hear the Lord say to you, you need to repent? It's been brought home especially, of course, in the American election year to me, an American, because it seems that we, that we all think Princes can save us on whichever side of the political divide we are. The scriptures warn us against it. In fact, if like me, you've studied any of the revivals that were important to evangelicals, those revivals came about because the church repented. Because in the scriptures, the Lord said, we are to be salt and light. If you want to know what's wrong with cultures all around us, 
It's not because worldly people are being worldly. It's because the church of Jesus, the Messiah, are not being salt and light. Like those Israelites, in times of prosperity, they've become unalert to the Lord. They've ceased to think in terms of what it will be like to live with him, what kind of holiness will be required. You may have noticed in all three of these passages, there's an understanding that this isn't done to us by God. It is done in cooperation with us. And so I think we have to ask some hard questions about ourselves. Oh, we don't sell people into slavery, but we'll buy the products cheaper of those who are. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't actually take sandals in pledge and sell a poor person into slavery. But you know, um, if our Adidas can be cheaper because somebody in China is getting slave wages, we'll buy them anyway. I had to ask myself, I, I came from, had my own house in America. When was the time that when I wanted to do a DIY project on my house, I stopped and thought, could this money be better used by a poor brother or sister that I know? There's a lot of questions like that that our society does not encourage us to ask. But if I understand the Apostle Paul, and if I understand Amos, and if I understand Jesus, this part of our journey as mortals is about learning. We've committed ourselves to him. It's about learning how to be like him. And the journey is for the purpose of accomplishing his purposes on earth, being his witnesses, being his hands and feet, bringing justice, living righteousness, and turning all of that into the witness of his love to a hurting world around us. I don't think I need to have to say much, I have to say much more, but perhaps I can conclude with, with the words of a, a once famous Baptist mystic of about a hundred years ago, who says of disciples who are serious about living their life with Jesus forever, there is no such thing as a private life, a world within the world, for a man or a woman who is brought into fellowship with Jesus the Messiah's sufferings. God breaks up the private life of his saints and makes it a thoroughfare for the world on the one hand and for himself on the other. No human being can stand that unless he's identified with Jesus. We are not sanctified for ourselves. We are called into the fellowship of the gospel, and things happen which have nothing to do with us. God is getting us into fellowship with himself. Let him have his way. If you do not, instead of being of the slightest use to God in his redemptive work in this world, you'll be a hindrance and a clog. For all of us, I pray, that these words of apostles and Jesus himself and prophets can bear fruit in our own lives, under repentance if necessary, but certainly unto justice and righteousness for that great day when the trumpet will sound and the shout, and we all together who are his will rise to meet him in the air. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, 
Let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.